Well, Happy New Year to those I haven't had a chance to greet yet personally. It's great to see you. Great to have our students back for a new uh, academic semester. I know you're excited. We're excited to see you guys. Welcome to all of you. Hope you had a wonderful holiday. Um, Last weekend, we were right at the the cusp of this new year, on the very last day of the year, and I got to preach for a second time on John 1, the prologue to John's gospel, that really theologically deep section, the first 18 verses or so of John's gospel. And rather than trying to, to, to unpack all that's there, because really John takes the whole gospel of John, the whole book of the gospel of John to explain out everything he is saying in that first few verses in chapter one. Instead, I I simply turned it and said, in 2018, can I commend to you to to press into Jesus? Wherever you are, whatever place spiritually you are, if you're inquisitive, if you're just seeking Jesus, if you're skeptical, or if you're a devout follower of Jesus, press into him. And I suggested that it's oftentimes easy to talk about God in the in sort of the generic God word that's fairly acceptable still to talk about. But when you mention the person of Jesus, it really brings the power and it really brings the separation of what you mean about God. How do you define the God that you're speaking of? And as we pray for people to pray in the power of Jesus' name, and as we uh, look for our, our, in our prayer and devotional times, to, to think about the person of Christ. So what better way to begin 2018 than to examine the baptism of our Lord Jesus? Now, you got to love Mark. Mark is the most brief of the gospel writers. He is very economic in his word use. He very short. Whenever somebody comes to faith in Christ, I always suggest that Mark's the gospel they read first because he's right to the point. And actually half of the book goes straight to the cross and examines the work of Jesus on the cross, which, of course, is everything that Jesus is building to in his life. It's where he's moving. But here we have the the baptism, and and Mark gives us very, very few verses, doesn't he? Of course, our old friend John the Baptist is right back there again. So I feel like I've been preaching John the Baptist since November. It's like he's just always there. But remember what I said last week, that, that John is there because... John is the end of the Old Testament witness to the coming of God's anointed one, God's way of salvation. And so John comes to say, this is the one, this one that's coming after me. He's the one. Pay attention to him. I must decrease, John says. He must increase. And again, he's talking about that language, about not being worthy to untie his sandal. I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We, you may, when you hear this passage, and when I mentioned this passage to somebody this week, they immediately went to their own baptism. And, and, and that's a natural place for us to go. As a matter of fact, this is a Sunday that oftentimes we have baptisms. No baptisms this week, but a chance to reflect on what our own baptism means. Well, I want to focus in on those very few words that we have, the very few words that are recorded by Mark about the baptism. They're so brief. Jesus comes from Nazareth, where he's been working with his father, his earthly father, Joseph, as a carpenter, as a stone worker, and as a, 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 a one working with wood. And he comes to John the Baptist by the sea of the, the, the river Jordan to be baptized. 
And as he comes up out of the water, we're told, the, the sky opens up and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. Now, it doesn't say he, the Spirit is a dove, which sometimes gets depicted in pictures and movies, but he descends like a dove. I have no idea what that looks like. The only time I've really examined a dove is on a dove shoot, and they're usually trying to avoid my shotgun. And so I don't think that's what he means by the Spirit descending on him like a dove, but he descends on him like a dove. Whatever that means, he comes upon Jesus to empower him. And then Jesus hears the words from heaven, you are my beloved son. You're my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Well, let me just consider with you for a few moments those very few words that we have here. You see, Mark is very brief. He's economical because he understands that the people that he's speaking to would have been very familiar with the Old Testament witness to God's work of salvation. And so in those very few words, there's actually some key connections to very important Old Testament passages. So let's look, for instance, at this idea of the heavens opening up. Well, if you were to look back to uh, Isaiah 64, which you don't have to do, but I'm going to look there real quickly for us. Isaiah, right at the end of 64, Isaiah's prophecies about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, are, are profound above all the other witness of the Old Testament. It's amazing. It's why we, Christmas we read so many Isaiah passages. But listen to the way Isaiah 64, 1 begins. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah prays that God would rip open the skies and that he would reveal himself to people because the need is so great. We can't do this for ourselves, God. Will you rip, rip open the heavens and will you come down? Well, when Jesus sees the skies open and sees the Spirit coming upon him, Jesus knows the Old Testament. He knows that this is the answer to Isaiah's prayer, that God himself would act on behalf of his people, that he would rend the sky, that he would open the skies, and he would come. See how much is built right in that one little phrase? It's amazing, right? Well, but as Isaiah 61 reads on, you realize, and oftentimes, the way, the way Jewish scholarship works is that if you say the first verse, it's meant to bring you to the entire chapter, that entire section. So, for instance, on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his mind, is not just that phrase from Scripture in the Old Testament, but actually the entirety of Psalm. I think it's Psalm 22. Um, as Jesus thinks about this rending of the sky, it, he goes on to remember what Isaiah says in the passage. He talks about the God of creation, who we need to intervene. But then at, at verse 6, he begins to, to realize the, or excuse me, verse 5, he begins to realize his own sinfulness. And he says, behold, you are angry and we sinned. And our sin has been a long time. Shall we be saved? We all have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the things we do that other people see and think we're so noble, so well done, so good and righteous, even those things are, Isaiah says, like polluted garments. 
Have you ever done that? You ever done something really nice, but you had alternative, ulterior motives and nobody knew it except you? My, my testimony, just to say, is, is that I, I was like a Pharisee, right? I was the, the guy that was going to be perfect in the world's eyes and people to think that I was, that I was really good. And, and the gospel, the good news of Jesus came in my life when I realized that God understood that I had ulterior motives, but he loved me anyway. That he saw the darkness of my heart, and yet he, he accepted me, that he had done something about my sin, even though I looked so good on the outside. I don't mean physically, but my actions. <laughs> well, maybe a little bit, Ethan, since you prodded me along a little bit there. So, uh, In a couple of weeks, I'm going to begin a men's Bible study with, with some of the men in the congregation. And, uh, if you don't know the guy, Dallas Willard. Dallas was a, uh, a theologian. He was a philosophy professor at, out in um, Berkeley, Southern California. Uh, also a committed Christian, very deep thinker. Some of us are familiar with a book called The Divine Conspiracy. This is a, a shorter book called Renovation of the Heart, Putting on the Character of Christ. And, and Dallas just has a way of, of saying things that I love. And as I began to think about this, this, this sinfulness, this, our righteousness as filthy garbs, the, 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 the presence of, of, of the brokenness of our lives and even our, our best motives being tainted falsely, I was reminded of this passage in Dallas. He says, the world is not as God intends it to be. Then he goes on to talk about pride and lust. He says, lust and pride are all around us, inevitably resulting in a world filled with fear. Now, we think of lust in the sexual sense, and that's one aspect of it, but Paul talks about that lust can be the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Paul talks about that. I think it's in Corinthians. And here, here, is, here is Dallas Willard reflecting that in the absence of, of God's goodness, there, what, what commands, what, what controls, what dominates our life is lust and pride. It talks about desire, that we desire things, and sometimes in our understanding, we confuse Loving something or someone with desiring it. If you think about that, you know, I love her or I love him. Is that truly what they mean or I desire her, I desire him? I mean, isn't that why once our hearts are broken in romantic love, we say, but I thought he loved me. I thought she loved me. When in fact, what they really meant was they desired us. You desire ice cream. You don't love ice cream. Because what are you going to do with ice cream? You're going to worship it? You're going to take care of it? You're going to pet it? No, you're going to consume it. You're going to eat it. You desire ice cream. I desire ice cream. <laughs> Confessing my own sins. But, but to love is to want the good of the thing, the, the object. It's good. It's best apart from you. Desire versus love. I think it's an important distinction that, that Dallas Willard brings out that, that, that's helpful to me to begin to understand the brokenness, the evil, the sinfulness of my own life, even as a follower of Christ. So this is what Willard says. He says, for, they, for those things, lust and pride, bring into a world little dictators and most likely things 
and most likely and most likely thing is that each person will be used and abused by others possibly destroyed and at least not helped or cared for a world dominated by lust and pride our families he says which should be a refuge from such things often turn out to be places where victimization is at its worst. Parents who don't truly love their children, but desire their children, desire to control their children, desire their children to make them look good. Isn't that a work going on around us? Tender young are inhabited, inhibiting a world, the, the adult of adult world. Sorry, guys, I'm sometimes not good at reading out loud, but this is so important. An adult world hardened by evil. A baby is not even safe in its mother's womb. Injury brings pain and loss, then fear and anger, which mingle with resentment and contempt and settle into postures of coldness and malice with brutal feelings that drain the body of health and strength and shatter social well-being. Not a very pretty picture Dallas Willard is painting of our world, but it's the very reflection that Isaiah has in, in the 64th chapter as he begins to cry out to God that God would rend the heavens and come down and intervene and do something, he realizes like Solzhenitsyn that it's not the evil in the world, it's the evil within my heart. Solzhenitsyn said that, that the evil runs through the heart of every human being, every man and woman. It's the problem of evil in our lives. It's Mother Teresa saying that the greatest poverty in the world is spiritual poverty. Even our righteous acts are polluted garments. Now, the, the irony, the plot twist in the gospel is that into this world, Jesus Christ comes, the sinless one, the one who is the perfect keeper of God's law. The very one person who did not need to come to the Jordan River to be baptized by John for repentance is Jesus. And yet he comes to be baptized to identify with broken, evil, sinful humanity. He's, he enters into the, the throes of the pains and the turmoil and the evil of our own hearts and lives into the brokenness that Dallas Willard was just describing. He enters into that, the sinless one, to identify with us. As Jesus sees the skies ripped open, he realizes that, that he is God's provision for the world to be God rending the heavens and coming down to deal with the issue of sin. But what about the phrase, my son in whom I love? What did that mean for Jesus? The sinless one coming, but also the, the one whom the Father loves. Well, for Jesus and for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, immediately that takes us back to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, we have the call of Abraham. Remember Abraham? God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make a people of you, a peculiar people of you. And then, he, and then after Abraham is nearly 100 years old, God gives Abraham a son, Isaac. Imagine waiting 99 years for a son. And then 
What, is, what does God do? He says, I want you to take your son, Abraham, and I want you to go to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. I want you to slit his throat, just as you would a goat or a lamb. Now, you have to understand that God had separated himself in all the Old Testament, apart from the other things that were worshipped, the other gods that were worshipped, by not requiring human sacrifice. And yet, he asked of this, of Abraham, the supreme sacrifice. But then the plot changes just as Abraham is about to be faithful and to do what God has called him to do. God stops him and sends an angel and says, no, I, I don't want you to kill your son. When God calls Abraham to take Isaac, he says, take your son whom you love to Mount Moriah. Well, for again, for the first century Jewish mind, for someone who knows the scriptures, when Jesus hears from God the Father in heaven, this is my beloved son. This is the son whom I love. It immediately connects him to Genesis 22. And in that, we realize that, that God is about to make the great exchange. You see, what God had asked Abraham to be willing to do, but then would not allow him to carry out the killing of his son Isaac, now God the Father is going to allow his son, his son whom he loves, to be sacrificed for us. And that Mount Moriah, well, that's the same mountain that when David builds the temple, we call it Mount Zion. It's the very same place that the temple is built, where Jesus was, where he was rejected from, where he was crucified outside of. It is a connection to this sacrifice that God is going to call Jesus to make. And Jesus is going to willingly make. My son, my beloved son, the sacrifice. And then thirdly, the last phrase, in whom I'm well pleased. Now you might think, well, surely my beloved son, the son I love, whom I'm well pleased, if you love your son, you're well pleased with him. Well, not necessarily. There have been lots of times in my life when I've loved Jake more than anything, my son, but not necessarily been pleased with him. It's a different reference. It's actually the reference we have here to Isaiah 42, which you already heard Ken wonderfully read to us. In case you missed it, though, let me turn over there. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. For Jesus, when he hears that I'm well pleased, it is for him, a connection to that passage that we heard read from us from Isaiah 42. And if you're, you're still in doubt, then read the next part. My chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. When there's the spirit descending. Do you see how in these very few verses, these three little phrases connect to huge themes in the Old Testament and testify, along with John the Baptist, that this is the one, this is the sinless one that God is sending into the world to be the sacrifice for our sins. That he might substitute himself for us 
You heard Ken read it, but let me remind you, it goes on to say down a few more verses in verse 6, I will take him by the hand, and Ken told us he's talking about the righteous one, his servant, Jesus. I will give him as a covenant for the people. Now, when it says, I will give him as a covenant, it's saying, I will use him, I will make him a way for my people to be in covenant as a means by which my people can be in covenant with me. And there's the gospel that God has sent his son into the world to be the substitution for us, that we could be in covenant relationship, that we could be guaranteed that, that not only in this life, but in the life to come, that, that God will not forsake us, that he doesn't leave us in our sin, that he doesn't leave us in the midst, not only in a world of pride and lust, but in our lives trapped by pride and lust. That he's come to set us free from the things that bind us. I love what we, was read to us by Ken in those verses, um, particularly verse 3. He, he talks about the, 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 the servant, which is the way Isaiah talks about the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, who Scripture makes clear is Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It says of him, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, at the early service, they were telling me that after the this, this service was over, that they actually had one of the altar candles that they thought was out of oil, and it was just like flickering like it was going to go out, and that it, that it was almost gone, and then it came back. And, uh, and they, were, they, they were just relaying to me, Nan was relaying to me how, how cool that was in light of what I was going to say about this, which is to, to say, I mean, think about a bruised reed. What could be more useless than a bruised reed, a bent reed? And yet, the Messiah sees nothing as useless. What could be, what could be uh, you know, pointless? What could be, what could be uh, more too far gone than, uh, than a, a smoldering wick, than a wick that's just got the little ember, and, but it's gone out, and you see the smoke coming up? And yet, for the Messiah, nothing is too far gone, and nothing is useless. Now, as we say, that'll preach, right? Man, I'm so thankful that, that, that the Messiah, Jesus, doesn't see me as useless or too far gone. Amen? That there's, that there's not a point in which it, I've gone too far. My sin is too great. I've rejected God too many times to receive his salvation. He will not affect a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. And so the gospel comes to us. And so on a Sunday where we normally would be doing baptisms, but today we don't, we remember that this is, the, this is what we're immersed in. This is the baptism that we're immersed in. This is what our baptism means, that we have identified ourselves with the sinless Son of God who has come to be a sacrifice for our sins and to bring us into covenant with him by being our substitute. That is what the gospel is all about. It causes us all to consider, reflect, is that what I'm building my life on? 
if, if, if the gospel is that God so loved the world that He sent His Son that He might give His life for us, is that the love foundation of my life? Or am I, like Dallas Willard says, am I building my life on a foundation of pride and lust? Is, is, is what I really focus on and, and, and build my life around those things which bring pride to me and which fulfill the desires that I have? And if we're honest, even for us who know Christ, too oftentimes it is that pride and that desire that rules our hearts. But who truly loves us? Who truly loves us? Who has given himself for us? While we were yet sinners. Friends, this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the the grace of the gospel. That though we are people enmeshed in pride and lust and desire, that Christ has come, he has rent the heavens, he has come in the spirit of God to bring salvation, to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice. Oh, do you know that love this morning? If not, then let this be the day of salvation. Begin 2018 by repenting of the the pride and the lust and the desire and turn to the gospel. Maybe for the first time, maybe again to say, Lord, I fall upon your grace. Thank you for sending Jesus into my life. Let's pray. Father, we come back to the beginning, Lord. We come back to the the rock bed of our faith, the the person of Jesus, Lord. We make religion and spirituality about so many things, but it's truly about Jesus. Lord, thank you for the revelation, the glory that we see displayed at his baptism. Lord, we thank you for the, the roadmap of the Old Testament that draws us to this place of understanding that Jesus is the sinless one. He is the one who's come to offer himself as a sacrifice to be our substitute that we might be brought into new covenant, new relationship with you through him. Oh, Father, I pray for the salvation of us that are in this room, that you would guard our hearts against pride and sin and lust and desire, and Lord, that you would you'd bring us out of darkness into your glorious light. For you are our only hope, Lord. Truly, only you love us. And we thank you for that love. And that it's not just for us, but for all people. And we recommit ourselves to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.